This is the Baymo Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we are with L. Grover Fricks to discuss the historical portion of Isaiah that bridges the two portions of the prophetic work, considering the possibilities for voices and redactions. Woohoo! Yes, I'm here, as always, with the illustrious... No Grover Fricks. This could be a spicy episode. This could be, um, you know, we're going to have fun with it, let's say. I don't know exactly where we're going to land with everything, but we're going to have a good time and we're going to maybe push back on some ideas and we're going to we're going to wrestle and we're going to consider some things and and we're going to have a good time. Yeah, with a setup like that, how could we go wrong? <laughs> a worthy intention setting. I had a um when I when I when I was going through the the roadmap and the outline for Isaiah, I got to the section and I totally knew I'm like, oh, here's this great spot to talk about redaction. And before that sentence could even leave my mind, I went, oh, what an awesome opportunity to talk about source criticism and and document theory and redaction with L. And it will be awesome. And then I totally forgot that I put it on the calendar. So then L was telling me later she had. Seeing that we were going to talk about that, and I started arguing with, no, we're not going to talk about that. Why are you trying to put that in here, Elle? And then <laughs> look at the schedule and realize, well, there it is. So right. now we've always had a fun joke that some people may or may not know about. If people listen to the Text in Us podcast, they've probably picked up on the the fun the fun shade vague. that gets the vague shade. I like that. Yes, vague animosity. Um, but if they didn't know I was talking about you, they might think I'm just That's shooting so arrows true. into the abyss, That's which is so also true. fine. But we had a conversation back in episode 82, Brent, you could throw that in the show notes where we talked just in really vague terms about document hypothesis. And I didn't mean necessarily to talk about Wilhausen theory itself, just the general principles of multiple authors and Torah in particular and all those kinds of things. And, and throughout the, um, the last few years, uh, Ellen and I like to give each other a hard time because we don't necessarily see those things the same way. So it'll be very fun. It'll be very fun to talk about it. I'm just here to restore the glory of God to the scripture. <laughs> it's all. It's okay. She's the one that really believes in the inspiration of the Bible. That's right. I love it. I <laughs> love it. Well, let's start with just, uh, let's just talk about redaction. Elle, do you want to just right. like... Get us started here. So if you uh, haven't studied this particular topic, the word redaction might bring to mind um, like redacted materials by the FBI or something, somebody going through with a Sharpie and taking stuff out. The general theory of redaction when we're talking about the documentary hypothesis and others is that it's kind of the opposite. Rather than taking pieces out, it's stitching together different stories, different manuscripts into one. So whenever we talk about like a redactor or a compiler, we're not talking about somebody going through biblical text and erasing things. We're talking about people potentially taking different manuscripts and combining them, maybe uh, cutting different pieces apart and putting them in different spots, etc. But that's what we mean by redaction. And I find like what makes this conversation for me so difficult is I feel like words matter and we all mean different things when we use some of this language and some of these these words. Like redaction for some, uh, I often use words just really loosely, very broad stroke-esque. Uh, and 
And one of the things that I will often, like when I think redaction, that can mean everything as simple as the way that Brett edits our podcast episodes and put things together. And <laughs> um, like, that's kind of what I think about the redactors. Did you just say, did you say Brett? No, I said Brent. Okay. He uses words See, this is the Zoom Brent. problem. <laughs> this is what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, totally. But, but you know, I, I don't I don't think often very thoroughly and technically about what I even mean by these terms half the time. But these, like these words matter. And then even when we talk about, like I'm going to ask you here in a moment, Elle, to talk about like some of the theories that have kind of been around for the last few decades and maybe century, century and a half. But even within those theories, there's all kinds of different ways that people have pieced together those details and the nuances and the complexities of that make it really difficult. Like any other conversation that we have socially, politically, like there are complexities and nuances to all of that that make it really tricky to talk about. And it's it's helpful to have labels and categories and boxes until it's no longer helpful. Right. Because we just toss stuff in there. Even the term source criticism can get people fired up. But right. <laughs> what that means is thinking critically about the source, not criticizing the source. Right. Yep. So thinking critically about the source, meaning which manuscripts are we looking at? Where did those come from? What are the dates of those manuscripts? So even when we just hear source criticism, don't you care about the inerrancy of the word or whatever? Yeah, I, I uh, was that's not necessarily what it's talking about. Right. I, when I was whenever we talked criticism. They leveraged that word criticism in Bible college in my original training. Like, these are people that don't, let's look at the word criticism. These are people that don't even believe in the ins, the inspiration of the Bible. At least that was maybe unstated, but that was definitely the, the tone and the posture and the language being used. But I, I love how you just worded it. Like, somebody might even have written a whole chapter about that in a book. Like, how important it is to think critically about the when, the where, the who, the how, all that kind of stuff. That, I mean, who would argue against that, right? What book was that, Marty? I don't know. Somebody wrote a book titled Asking Better Questions of the Bible, A Guide for the Wounded, Weary, and Longing for More. But this isn't a commercial, Brent Billings. <laughs> yeah, but if you're going to allude to it, I'm going to link to it. All That's right, how this well, works. Listeners can't see, but Brent is wearing the sweatshirt right now. Oh, let's try him. Speaking of what listeners can't see, here's what they need to know throughout the course of this episode. What I'm looking at on Zoom is L. Grober Fricks, and there's a window perfectly positioned right behind and above her head. So it looks like she has a halo yep. as the sun shines through the window. So it's make it, it makes it very difficult for me to take. I feel like I'm arguing with the Lord. If I, I mean, the Holy Spirit <laughs> does reside within me, and the seating arrangement was providentially arranged to remind you that back. All right. Hey, if I were to say Wellhausen, and if I were to say Schwartz, could you talk to me about different theories of redaction, particularly when it comes to document and document documentary hypothesis? Does that term only refer typically in academia L to the books of Moses and Torah? Does that get used in a wider sense? What what's typically being when we talk about Wellhausen and Schwartz's theories? Yeah. So um Wellhausen is German. He's from 1844. Um, and his whole thing, to quote him, he said, I became a theologian because the scientific treatment of the Bible interested me. So Wellhausen and his cohort were primarily looking at Pentateuch, at Torah, at the Chumash. Um, and again, that scientific approach was supposed to say, 
where where are these felt inconsistencies coming from? Like a classic is that Moshe's father-in-law, Moses's father-in-law, has three or four different names right. in Torah. So why is that? And so they came up with this theory that uh, there were four different primary authors and voices, um, and that got pieced together way over time. And those four voices are referred to um, by letters, initialisms. Um, and the way the rest of Tanakh gets looped into that is while they believe that all four are present in Torah, that most of the rest of the Bible was written by one or two groups. Is that typically the Deuteronomist? Yes. That they will typically say that's... Right. Yeah. Correct. Almost like I've heard some people discuss them, talk about them almost as schools, like mm-hmm. it, not 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 singular authors, obviously, but like there's a there's a school of of thought, of redaction, of whatever you want to call that. Right. I, and I mean, you can read different folks who are going to have different postulations about the themes that each carries, but to get a sense of how they're split up, um, originally J. Um, stands for uh, Jehovahist, right? Because we're using our German there. Um, and they would split that up by whenever you see the actual name of God being used. And then there's E, which stands for Eloist, which is whenever you see Elohim. Obviously, you can now imagine how complicated that gets very quickly because there's lots of verses and portions which use both interchangeably. And so you start copying and pasting these vast things. And you can even buy different people's theories of this is J and then just read J, which can be interesting. That went out of style in the 70s, in the late 70s, Wellhausen. 1970s. Yes, 1970s. Thank you. Yep. Um, so it enjoyed a 70-ish year um, presence, especially in America, and it's still taught in America, um, but it's often updated um, when it's taught now um, into the neo-documentary hypothesis. And the neo-documentary hypothesis is very, very similar. Um, I'm linking over to Brent, who will put it in the show notes a breakdown of like seven differences between the two if you want to dig more and try to grasp exactly the differences. But the main one is that the neo-documentary hypothesis hypothesizes one compiler. So before it was like there are these different groups and things come together over time. And this says there's one compiler who took all four manuscripts and uh, figured out exactly how to piece them together. Um, That has had a resurgence now, um, starting in the early 2010s, I'd say. Well, maybe a little bit earlier than that. But the key, well, the key is kind of a big statement. One of the preeminent voices in that circle is Baruch Schwartz, who uh, I had the privilege (laughs) of studying with at Hebrew University of Jerusalem and um, taking many classes with him. And so I am passionate about this and feel like I might have more insight than just more of an armchair opinion, because that's what the content of those courses were. We went through different books and pieced them apart and pasted them back together again. Um, And you can look him up on academia.edu, read all of his papers, Um, not all of them, but a whole bunch of them. He's quite quite the figure. And when you say one redaction source, does that 
perspective typically mean one literal person doing that or like a group of like a group of people working in concert together to compile these things? Right. Presumably in concert, okay. but one group at one time. Not multiple redactions that have to get compiled, recompiled again later, but one one right. work of compilation. Right. Interestingly, they're not really interested in the absolute dating of that sure. um, <laughs> of that group. There's different theories, but they don't really focus on that. So the point of these approaches is, again, a lot of theology... Um, leans very much into the humanities, right? Biblical studies, now that we have really robust archaeology, that's a little bit different, but so much thinking and talking in a very abstract, esoteric realm. And so these folks were trying to be objective, trying to just look at the text from, again, the scientific perspective. And when we switched from the original doc hypo to the new doc hypo, you also switched from primarily German engine, they were the big theologians for a long time, to a primarily Jewish um, perspective, which is probably a healthy adjustment. I'm not that all voices can engage in the text, but it's always good to hear from um, the Jewish voice about <laughs> the text that they wrote, right? Um, and again, this isn't so much the European approach anymore, um, but it is still the one that you'll hear at major American universities. So what was your experience when you were over in Jerusalem at Hebrew U um, or even since then? What is the is there a difference, a, a, a distinction between the Jewish posture when it comes to? what we would call textual criticism and what the Gentile world of scholarship does with textual, like what's the dance between like, do Jews still think in scholarship? Does Jewish scholarship still think in terms of textual criticism, source criticism, that kind of thing? Was that still prevalent? Is it the same? Is it different? What does that look like? Speaking only, of course, from my experience, not from the whole field, which I know is your intention because you said that. Um, but uh, it totally depends because there's a rich world of Jewish conversation, which completely, if you were to be like, oh, I think that's Jay, they would blanket you. I sure. uh, studied at my local Hillel and had a Chavruta partner and everything. And if I tried to bring that in, um, it would have been con not necessarily confusing, but uh, not an approach that's in the toolbox that they would reach for. Um, but the scholarship happens to belong to folks who are Jewish at the moment, yeah. uh, or a lot of it. And the tenor, though, the timbre of that conversation is still kind of a frustration, perhaps a swinging of the pendulum back from the other toolbox. You know, like, well, if you look at the gematria, like, no, 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 <laughs> please stop. Right. Uh, Schwartz would be very free with saying, nope, that approach is not welcome in my classroom. Um, over to this feeling of we want to be objective, we want to be historical, we want to be scientific. Sure. Um, so it's kind of appealing to that side of things, which can, of course, show up in the Christian space or the Jewish space or the secular space. Yeah. So I feel like that's probably a good segue. Uh, can we? Should we talk well, about... Before, before we segue, I have a couple of clarifying questions. Sure. Schwartz is still active today. Yeah. He's, he's a professor Yes. And and continuing the work of, of yes. this whole idea. Yes. Okay. And then the link that you referenced is the Joel Baden link, right? Uh, yes. He's out of Yale. I'm going to quote him later, but he's the one who kind of draws differences between those. And that was, that article is from 2012. And so it's pretty 
new in the conversation. So things have evolved since then, but I still thought it might be helpful for people. Excellent. And then I'm just wondering if there's like, I mean, obviously this work is in some senses modern, but like, is there a, is there another analogy of something else that we do in another part of society that people might be more familiar with who aren't familiar with like an academic process like this? Um, The thing that I'm reminded of a lot, uh, although I don't know if it's more accessible or not, is the way we approach the U.S. Constitution, right, Uh, of saying, well, that line was from a Jeffersonian model of what freedom is, and we've altered it since then, and so therefore... We should reapply that back versus folks who are like, nope, it's one big cohesive done thing. Right. Um, So there's that analogy, but I'm not aware of other ones. Yeah, it's a good example. So before we start heading towards Isaiah, which is why we're ultimately here today, but we're going to talk about so many other things as well. Ostensibly here today. (laughs) Should we? Should we talk about what's good and what's a danger? What's a challenge? What's not good about source criticism and the redaction conversation and where does it serve us well where does it become a hindrance let's let's do that what do you see as as good things about the redaction conversation now yeah i'm looking forward to hearing from you as well uh, what you love about it because so often i you know get little messages from you shadow boxing me <laughs> <laughs> and i don't really know what the full background uh, perspective is there But things that are intriguing or engaging about it, at least for me, are that it can open up um, this idea that different elements in the text are in conversation with each other. And of course, you can have that intertextual conversation even if you don't subscribe to the documentary hypothesis, right? Because you can have later writers chronologically referring back to previous writers. But certainly if you split up a text into four different parts in one go, which they definitely do, especially in the first part of Exodus, um, then you get to say, oh, well, J was responding to P in this way or E. They wouldn't actually say that because P is supposedly much later than um, J or E, but supposedly they're talking to each other. And that can be interesting to illuminate different sections of like, oh, well, why did the biblical author frame this this way? Oh, maybe he was responding to this idea or they or she, right? Right. Um, uh, I think it's helpful not to be fixated in one way to imagine um, that the book was written, right? Sometimes we kind of uh, talk like or imagine that the scripture just kind of, descended from on high. (laughs) Some of that might be true um, of Moses coming down the mountain, right? But otherwise, we can have this very fixed idea of like everything that Jesus said wasn't in conversation with anybody. He was just saying it uh, apropos of nothing, ex nihilo, right? And that can hinder our way of understanding the larger context um, of what might really be the meat of what Jesus is saying, for instance. And so that can having the idea or the openness to that documentary hypothesis might be true or partially true or helpful can help us break that rigidity of the way that we view scripture, um, which sometimes is the reason that we don't like it, right? Some of us are like, nope. Yeah. Uh, Moses wrote all of Torah, the end. Right. Um, That's what I was taught. And that's how I'm comfortable engaging with it. The end. Yeah, I think you've put in words to so many of the reasons why I gravitate in those directions um, and what I love about because I was handed that 
right. very rigid, very clear cut. No criticism, no thinking critically. No, and that's that's too harsh. But there was no like, no. This is this was written down by the author as it's presented. Exa- like just no. And so having that, I, you have in your notes here this phrase, a handy tool in the toolbox. Like right. just having that awareness of asking some of those initial questions are so helpful. I think about Brent. You could link this episode in the show notes to the end of session two, where we talk about the prophetic table. And one of the things we were wanting to do with the the prophets using Brueggemann's work was let's hear these prophets as different voices in conversation, which is a whole lot safer of a conversation to say the prophets are talking to God's people with differing perspectives, all of them inspired and all of them a piece of the picture. And it's a similar vibe for me when I think of, oh, could Torah have multiple source voices in conversation, which ends up being the beautiful inspired word of God back and forth as those voices talk. So I think I like the way you've, you've worded all that. Not, not fixated on one way of seeing this, always being able to ask questions, always being able to consider. Cause if this prophet's written before Babylon, that sure changes the tone and what's being said. Then if this prophet's written after Babylon, like that really matters. One's either poetically looking back crit- critically or one's really talking about the future and so those things are all just super helpful. Right. That yeah. was episode 71, by the way, the prophetic table. And, and all of that stuff being, like El said, that's all disconnected from wherever you might stand on documentary hypothesis or your ignorance of that or anything. You can have those conversations apart from all of those handy little details. Absolutely. And you said something about an overcorrection. Right. Of like, oh, we thought this one way and now we're we're swinging too far the other way. I, I think there there has to be some sort of middle ground because even even the plainest reading of the books of Moses, like what is going on at the very end of Deuteronomy, clearly Moses is not his writing ghost. about his own death. That's where we got the idea of ghostwriting, actually. It's Moses. <laughs> the Literally. original ghostwriter. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. But yeah, the rabbis pointed that out very, very early on. Um, I think in the era of Amaim that like, oh, Moshe couldn't have written this whole thing. So who did? Yeah. So, so there's gotta be some dangers. It can't just be a complete party here. (laughs) Like, let's just go crazy with source criticism. So what do we, what ought we be aware of, Elle? Yes, I have five objections. Here they are. Number one. Here's the spice. Five points. Five point Ellenism right here. That's right. Ellenism. Perfect. It's my whole name. Okay. Uh, I do love that. Point number one. Uh, despite that desire to pull toward objectivity, it ends up becoming very art-esque rather than science-esque because you're looking at these lines and these folks who have had enormous amounts of education and they're in conversation with all these other people But when you get down to it, it's like, well, why do you feel like this one is E? Oh, well, you know, it's using this verb. Okay, well, why couldn't J also use that verb? Well, J doesn't tend to. How how would you know that? (laughs) It becomes a pretty cyclical thing of like, oh, well, J really likes this word for destruction and E really likes the word destroy. You know, it's like, why? (laughs) It becomes very self-referential. Um, in its thinking. And so it 
kind of becomes a painting project of, well, I think E is going to be this way and I kind of need this component to tell this story. And so I'm going to pick this first and put it in here and this one to put it in here, right? They're shaping this puzzle. Um, and even though it's trying to approach the text with a really scientific um, lens, it ends up being very, well, that feels du dubious to me. Um, that seems kind of far-fetched. So we're going to go with this way or this rendering instead, which is like, okay, <laughs> if you say so. Um, that was the experience in the classroom anyway. And, and if you read those different renderings, it's not like anyone, in my opinion, can say verse two is definitely P. Like you have, you can come up with a couple of bullet points of why you might think that's true. But there's no, we have no hard evidence. <laughs> Nobody has ever found a manuscript um, archaeologically that is a representation of J, E, P, or D. Zero. We only find the text the way it already is. And so everybody is just coming up with their own theories. Um, the second objection, although feel free to jump in at any point. I'm, I'm waiting for you to do your whole list. Okay, great. The second issue that I have uh, is part of um, the system of academia, um, which is a delightful little dysfunctional corner to live in sometimes. Um, but within that, within that system, it behooves you to come up with a thesis that will be accepted. And it's really hard to sit there and come up with a good thesis. Uh, you can say, you know, looking historically, you have to pull something out that you're interested in, can write hundreds and thousands and ten thousands of words on. So, you know, like, oh, I wonder how this group of nuns in the 1200s of France interacted with this particular biblical story and how that interpretation affected the larger area, right? <laughs> has to be like really specific because nobody can have said your thesis before. And we've been re reading this word for thousands of years. So good luck, you know, coming up with something niche and original and interesting. But it is pretty easy to take five verses of scripture. There's a lot of verses. And to come up with your own, like, well, I think verse one is J and verse two, part A is P, but part two of verse two is D, right? There is a bajillion infinite different ways to split it up. And so uh, for a long time, that that's like the joke in the culture of academia is like, well, you got to get your doctorate somehow. So might as well do it on the doc hypo because you have infinite range to play around without having to do a lot of really firm historical textual manuscript um, corroboration. So that's my second complaint. Really third, if you throw in the archaeology that we've never found a P or a D or a J. I would make it a list of six, which I'm fine with. Go ahead. Great. <laughs> Six, because it's the number of man. <laughs> bum, bum, bum. Okay, it's a sign. Not really. Uh, the next thing, which can just be personal, some people love granularity, but to me, it gets really granular and it doesn't always have a punch to it. It doesn't always have something applicable that is helpful, that is a service to the people. You don't even know if it's true. Um, so it's a lot of time. Um, Umberto Casuto, I'm going to talk about later, quotes um, this fellow, uh, Mayer Sternberg from Tel Aviv, 
who said, rarely have such grandiose theories of origination been built and revised and pitted against one another on the evidential equivalent of the head of a pin, and rarely have so many worked so long and so hard with so little to show for their trouble. <laughs> you know, so like you can sit there and be like, OK, there's three different um, names for Moshe's father-in-law and you can sit there for hours and try to piece which one goes with which supposed manuscript but like that doesn't serve anyone for me anyway that doesn't do anything with the narrative with the text that doesn't move me and again maybe that's personal of just being bored with that kind of conversation um but there's nothing that feels practical and rooted in in the ground and has like a sod or a drash to it right it's just like okay all right, cool. You think that's P? Awesome. Gold star. I'm ready to move on. Um, but again, that could be me. Uh, fifth thing out of six um, is that it can end up being a fix-all. And I'm totally guilty of doing this on the text nest when I'm not totally sure what to do with something. I always can shrug and be like, well, it could be the documentary hypothesis. <laughs> <laughs> It can totally get used as a Band-Aid. If you don't know what's going on with the text, you can just say, ah, documentary hypothesis. Like, why does it repeat twice? Well, I'm not sure. Um, so we'll use this tool for absolutely everything. Um, Baden, who we mentioned earlier from Yale, says at the end of that passage that the central question that the neo-doc and the doc hypo are trying to answer is, why is the Pentateuch incoherent? And I just think that that's not true. So point number six is that it ends up, and to me this is the biggest one, totally obscuring the historical and cultural genre um, in a dangerous ethnocentric way. Like if I'm going to read the Genesis uh, creation story going way back early, Bama Epps there. Um, and I'm like, well, it seems that there's like creation of humans happens twice. I'm used to a chronological storytelling, right? <laughs> and so I can say, well, clearly those are two different manuscripts that have been pasted together because in my world, my experience, which is extraordinarily limited, people write chronologically. So centering myself and then saying everything that doesn't conform to the way I expect literature to be must be an aberration of different authorship ends up obscuring chiasms, literary references, like so much of the work that Bema does is calling attention to these little things that we think of creating problems that we don't call them problems, right? And then finding something that's a beautiful, moving, meaningful treasure inside there. Like, well, why did Jesus call them that? Oh, he's referencing this text. Amazing. And when you just say, well, it's a different author, you completely um, put the eraser, put white out over all of that work, um, which would come up in the classroom a lot of myself uh, frequently saying, couldn't that be chiastic? Couldn't that be a reference to earlier when blah, blah, blah. And the response was almost always like, well, that seems dubious. It's like, that's not, that's not an answer. That's just, that's not my preference, you know? Um, so we had a tumultuous relationship, uh, student professor there, but it was good. Um, but to me, 
utilizing the doc hypo when you move away from it conceptually and look at what it actually does to the text it's uh robs so much of the nutrients that at least are so meaningful to me that was a good list oh thanks yeah i i would surprisingly uh i really i really appreciate this list i, I think i'd just affirm like all these dangerous um all of these objections as you called it um Oh, she added to the the Google Doc we're using. She added the sixth one. Good. <laughs> Good. Six pillars. Six pillars of Ellenism. My goodness, I'm going <laughs> to laugh about that for so, so long. Perhaps my greatest literary achievement on this podcast. <laughs> uh, I, I, I would simply say that I think these are really six. The, these objections are six really accurate, experienced, real not just theoretical or hypothetical. These are the real dangers of how this goes wrong. I think that being the basis of rejecting the theory in whole um, would be probably where I would somewhat diverge from from that. I feel like, and it's such a hard, so the dubious element or the objectivity, subjectivity, it just cuts both ways. And so it ends up being like, mm. what do you prefer like my preference is when I look at this stuff is I'm like, oh, I, I absolutely see multiple voices and authors at play and those things coming together. Um, but that's just because that's what makes the most that, that seems like because it also feels like sometimes the people that might reject documentary hypothesis just weave these things together with fanciful, convenient explanations, which feels right just as subjectively. Right. But you're absolutely right that there's so much sub subjectivity. So I'm actually looking at the the notes now. Like objectivity, despite the pull towards objectivity, it's an art. It becomes more it becomes more art than science. And yet there is certainly science underneath. It definitely gets twisted and pulled in that direction and people build with it way beyond what objectivity would let them. And yet there really are like objective, what we might call more scientific conversations about word usage. Not that there aren't other ways to explain those things, but right. objectivity and science in a sense of, okay, but we can't actually look at when this word is used and how they're using the name of God. And right. those would be ob right. objective. Sure. Let me slide in here and clarify that even though I'm not team Doc Hypo, happy coming out as uh, not pro doc hypo uh double negative um no it's not um anyway wow either way a confusing way to say that yeah, you, you're you welcome, are not everyone. in favor of documentary hypothesis thank you brent see value growing day by day um just kidding okay uh it is clear of course, um, I am not advocating that all of the scripture descended from the heavens in pick a random date, 1000, you know, BC or whatever. That That's not what I'm saying. Um, the book of Jonah, for instance, has Persian loan words in it. Great. The book that of was, Esther yep. has Persian loan words in it. Um, and you can very clearly bump them into different historical categories because Persian didn't exist <laughs> prior to a certain date, right? Mm -hmm. So trying to make an argument otherwise is rather fruitless. Um, 
But, right, sometimes a whole bunch of other texts get bumped into that later date because people are fussing about themes and stuff, but there aren't Persian loanwords in it, right? So to me, being scientific, taking a scientific approach means being consistent. Um, and if you do want to say that something's late, but uh, but doesn't contain any of the evolutions of the language, then you better have a pretty robust um, explanation for why that is, other than they were writing in an archaic style, <laughs> because um, right. I don't find that very compelling. But now I'm the same as my professor. Yeah, <laughs> Still, yeah. yeah. But that's the tricky part, right, is we all end up trying to figure out, like, well, these are the elements that I need, where if you put enough of these elements together, you've now kind of, like, tipped that burden of proof or right. give it enough evidence to your theory to make it make the most sense. And we all just have like different starting points and then different points at where that tips for us. Because a lot of those things do end up like when somebody suggests like, well, this is obviously, and I, I, I'm with you, I hate the obviously. Is it really that obvious? But right. they'll say this is right. obviously the priest voice because this is going to be written during this era where they've just constructed the new priesthood with a temple. And obviously they're putting it and you're like, oh, well, that oh, sure. I can see that. That's beautiful. Right. And I'm an easy right. sell on some of those some of those if things. It's beautiful. Yeah. Right. <laughs> okay. Right. Yeah. I'd also say pay attention to who you're learning from. First off, if it's after the year 2000, it's probably more trustworthy than if it's like in the 80s, not because something amazing happened in the year 2000, but because science moves over time. And then also making sure that the person who's you're listening to speaks the language because sometimes you can read a text and they've read somewhere like, oh, this verb, but they don't actually speak it. And so they're making big, um, you know, they haven't read the whole book in Hebrew before. And so sometimes that happens. So I would just um, compel is something I'm not able to do. So um, either complain or encourage people to learn from people with uh, credentials slash who have learned the language if they're going to be making big statements about, well, this verb proves that it's blah, blah, blah. Do they know that? Because sometimes people say stuff and they don't know. Don't listen to me. That's the <laughs> lesson here. No. It's true that a lot of where, what I've read and what's influenced and shaped my understanding of these things are stuff that when I go back and I open up that title page is from the 60s. Right. 60s and 70s. Usually not a whole lot before then. I have read some sources that were 40s or even earlier than that. But that 60s, 70s is before a lot of. And so whenever I whenever I'm looking at something that's making those assumptions now because of my fun relationship that I have with L, I'll flip to the title page. And if it's like 80s, 90s or after the 2000s, I'll be like, ah, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> nice. But it's it doesn't happen nearly as much as. As I'd like it to. <laughs> to be clear, you can listen to anyone from any time period. There's people doing amazing things. I'm talking very specifically about like the science of philology, the study of words, yep. historical um, evolution over time. Right. That stuff is the stuff that I'm saying it's better to be new than not. Yep. Um, there's lots of authors that I love who are 80s, 70s, um, particularly in certain genres. But... In this particular stuff, like Assyriology has just exploded as a science and it wasn't as present before. And that's helpful to know when you're reading people's renderings that are ignoring the Akkadian or the Arabic or whatever. Yep. Okay, so here we are 48 minutes in and people are probably wondering, what in the world does this have to do with Isaiah? Because we sit right on the cusp of 
what we would call second Isaiah or that second chunk of Isaiah, or however we want to phrase it. There are these four chapters, Isaiah 36, 37, 38, 39, in Isaiah that are obviously different. They're as different as the Hebrew as they appear in the, as far as like the prose and the way that they're presented um, in the English. And so it brings up this conversation of, of, of source criticism of who is the author What's going on here? Are there, is there one unified book? Are there two volumes, two different times of history? So what kind of things do you see, L, when you look at, at Isaiah? And I don't know if you want to start here, but do you see, do you see one coherent, seamless author, conversation, voice, book of Isaiah? Or do you see two distinct chunks? I've seen everything from four to six authors. Obviously, my love is four. Um, and not not even necessarily distinct authors, but distinct voices and time periods versus I, I, I almost always have seen two, except from the most like fundamentalist. Like, I feel like even the most conservative <laughs> scholarship will will see at least Isaiah one through thirty nine and then 40 through 66. What do you see when you look at it? Elle? That is me. I am a I'm a dualist, you know, in lots of ways. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> that was a slow burn, but I got there eventually. I like that. I like that. Excellent. Um, so I am a fan of two. Um, and I'm kind of a fan of two for a couple of reasons. One is I'm not super motivated by other arguments um, like, well, we have this narrative portion and somebody who writes poetry can't write narrative. To me, that's not very super compelling to be like, well, why not? Why couldn't he have done that? Um, and maybe other people have amazing reasons to say that, but, um, you know, people write both genres that happens. Um, so, but the main reason that I want to split it into two is because of what I'm trying to do with the book of Isaiah. Um, so that's my total bias. (laughs) Like I have not (laughs) translated the whole book of Isaiah from Hebrew to English. So it's art and not science is what I hear you say. (laughs) Yes, Yes, it it definitely (laughs) is. It would be more science if I had translated the whole book yet, but I have not. Sure. I've only done portions, so I can't, I don't have a feel for that. Um, even if I did, that didn't, wouldn't necessarily mean I'm the expert on that. But anyway, um, I want it to be too. And I want it to be too because uh, not only as a nice split at 40, just an instinctual thing that everybody has done, um, but because I think the idea is really compelling that we have first Isaiah, who, you know, is our classic angsty prophet. You know, he's got lots of woe to use, um, like Jesus, you know, so nothing wrong with that. (laughs) He's got lots of, this is what we're doing and this is what is going to happen. Um, not necessarily future fortune telling, um, cast, but just, uh, a, this is what we are reaping. Uh, if this is what we continue to sow, right. He's had all of this back and forth, all of this, uh, you have reached for God's expectations and have been found wanting massively, right? Please. You have been weighed, you have been measured, and you have been found wanting. And so to me, it's compelling 
that that is one cohesive piece or one cohesive idea. And I mean, if somebody wants to come in like yourself and be like, wow, there's two people talking. Okay. I still want to think of them as one, no matter how many voices are in there, because it's very compelling to me that the second Isaiah, the second portion, the second voice, um, rather than splitting off and putting himself on the registrar as a new prophet, right, who's talking in conversation with who brings all of his redemption, right? Because that's all about the Isaiah, second Isaiah, third Isaiah, whatever people want to label 40 through the end. It's all about redemption. It's all about beauty. It's all about um, God's faithfulness overcoming our unfaithfulness, right? And him choosing to say, I'm not going to write in the voice of Yesiah or whoever it is, I'm going to write in the voice of Isaiah because what Isaiah said isn't the end of the story. Um, that is not the, that's not complete. Just to say that destruction is coming for us. And of course, there's all sorts of other beautiful things inside there. But that thematic idea that destruction is coming for us because we have failed can't be the end of the story. And so I'm going to employ this voice and able to in order to make this correction, to say, and you know what, this desert that we have been living in, God is going to transform into this garden, this waste place that we have made a ruin, God is going to make into a fountain, right? That's the real end to the story. And I love that corrective approach. I love that so much of the time, um, I've heard you say that there's a sprinkling of hope inside the po uh, the prophetic books, right? That it's just kind of like, but hope comes in the morning and <laughs> lamentations. And instead being like, that might be the experience when you're in darkness of you only have that sprinkling of hope, but that's not reality. Let me tell you reality. And reality is 40 through 66. So it's like you could say that they're like, you have these two different voices, you have these uh two different authors and conversation with each other that then get pulled together, redacted into like this one cohesive narrative that's actually so beautiful and inspired. These multiple sources and these multiple authors getting pulled. Like that is beautiful. Well, I do. I do. I don't think people can see me smiling at you, but I, I, uh, <laughs> I mean, you're saying it with like the little glint in your voice, but, uh, yeah, totally. I don't have a problem with that. <laughs> Obviously the same person didn't write every single book of the Bible. Absolutely. No problem. Uh, yeah. My problem is with the approach, not the actual, uh, people who wrote it. I was just taking my opportunity to shadow box, but Give us some stuff about this man. You you did all this talking earlier in an earlier episode about like wizards and you and Josh were just going crazy. And I feel like you've uh, got some stuff in the notes here about magical priests. I do. So recap, when Josh and I talked Isaiah 6, um, I brought this information about these different magical priests in the Mesopotamian uh, Akkadian system. And I talked about in Isaiah 6 that specific ritual that Isaiah does um, being a replication, though, of course, with a twist on it, because God always meets the cultural context and turns it. Yes. Loved that, by the way. Ugh, I love it when God does that. It's so exciting. <laughs> um, but a Baru ritual. So the Baru is the name of the uh, wizard priest. I think we kind of facetiously called it. That's not my favorite term, but it is a fun one. Um, these priests who had magical powers, 
the Baru priest's job was to soothsay, was to um, fortune tell, was to try to figure out if the gods were against you or for you and tell you um, what was going to happen. Um, and talked about that being a possibility in that space in Isaiah 6, King Uzziah has died, the fierce goat strength of God has died, right? Mm. Um, and how God meets that them in that spot. And the rest of the book is kind of foretelling, I know we don't like foretelling, um, reflecting on this yeah. is where we are and this is what um, it could reap. So the other kind of magical priest, um, again, from the system that, depending on when you date uh, Isaiah, either they were swaddled in the system or it was adjacent and dominant to them, um, is the Asipu. And the Asipu, it's the other half to the Baru. And while the uh, Baru are soothsaying and fortune-telling and trying to figure things out, the Asipu come in and their their job is to curse break. Their job is to bring divine healing, which is tied to curse breaking in their theology. And this is from the same world, the same paradigm. This is absolutely. And the one that they would have been familiar with from their right. ancient of days or not ancient of days as a reference to the character, but from long <laughs> ages past is what I meant to say. Right. They would they would have been familiar with these figures um, and they are contemporary. They're at the same time. Yes. So the Asipu, they're uh, breaking curses, they're bringing healing, um, they're reversing bad destinies and bringing good ones instead. Uh, and so my hypothesis here, which is absolutely mine, um, as in I take culpability if it's totally off the chain, um, is that the first half of Isaiah is the song of the Baru, or more specifically, the song of God's Baru, and the second half is the song of God's Asipu. So hypothetically, then the Asipu half is saying, this is what you have wrought, the Baru part. This is what's coming because of your choices to um, disdain justice, right? And the second half is, uh, however, I choose to break this curse on your behalf. I choose to exchange the destiny you wrought for yourself for this beautiful resurrected destiny. I choose to bring um, healing where there has been sickness of morality, of character, of society, of system, of individuals, right? Um, now, there's the little hitch in my lovely little painting that I've made here artistically because it's not science, um, which is this little narrative portion right from this week, 36 through 39. However, I think um, that it fits there because the header for uh, first Isaiah is about after the death of King Uzziah. Uh, Uz being fierce strength of God, goat strength, specifically female goat strength, and King Hezekiah, Hezekiah. Um, Hazak is another word for strength, the strength that is able to bind something, which ties in with the Asipu, right? This this bad destiny is coming for you, and I'm going to overthrow it. I'm going to bind it um, so that it is not able to exert its power over you. These things that you have wrought for yourselves, I'm going to bind and set them aside so that instead we can share in this beautiful resurrected future. I love that. And and I for all the like the tongue in cheek references we're making to objectivity and science versus art, there's always a dance between those two. There's always so much science. And then you you bridge the gap with and you apply it and you paint mm -hmm. um, pastorally, exegetically, 
as a work of art. And I, I think there's far more objectivity in science there than you, than you would give yourself credit for, because I think there's some real historical context, like you said, contemporary experiences and assumptions. I think uh, I think it was Heschel's work in that huge tome that he had. He talked about um, the contemporary prophets or lack thereof, but he addressed the fact that this is you don't see necessarily the prophets all the way back in the time of the judges. You don't see the prophets all the way. Like this is something that was, this is God meeting his people in a medium that they're familiar with in the same ways that they would expect God to meet people. Cause that's what God's, the gods are doing for others. And God's showing up and saying, you're familiar with this. Let me dance with that, but let me do something that's so captivating. And, and so again, it's, how much objectivity is there enough to say for certain, but I do really like how the context speaks to that. And I, I, would, I would say more science than, than art. Although the art is fantastic. Don't get me wrong. I love the relationship between the art and the objectivity, the art and the science. I do love that. And if we don't have the art, oh. like how are we, how are we applying this to our lives anyway? Like if it's just all this cold scientific endeavor, and then we never actually turn it into a, a picture that changes who we are and affects what we do. Like I think about the idea of like, there's no archeological evidence of this documentary hypothesis. Well, we keep finding stuff all the time. Like there's no direct explicit archeological evidence of Abraham, but there weren't of other biblical characters either for a time. And then we keep making discoveries. The difference with documentary hypothesis is there's absolutely no evidence, but maybe these voices, they come along and they say, you know what, we're going to reinterpret this. We're going to, we're going to say this our way. And the last people to do that destroyed everything that came before them. And maybe we'll never have it. <laughs> or maybe it's not true. Like there's just things that we might not ever be able to know. I want, I want you to add Neo Neo doc hypo parentheses billings that's to the document <laughs> i am having the urge to open up a much broader conversation about what is science and what's the point of science yeah, and what sure. is art and what is the point of art but that's for a different time because i do want to argue with the way that those terms are being used but <laughs> well, breathing in maturity breathing in the grand tradition of the baymont podcast we like to throw around our terms loosely <laughs> Well, well, two of my Lack favorite, of specificity. yeah, two of my favorite authors, Peter Enns and Bruce Feiler, um, both have used the idea in, in distinct but similar ways. And the one that always comes to mind, I believe, is out of the book "Where God Was Born" by Bruce Feiler, and he says, "You're always we're all, we like to act like this isn't the truth, but we are always painting a picture with the scriptures. Um, we're always painting a picture with. We're choosing how we want." which stories we want to tell and how we want to tell them and at what times and in what places. And the question is why are, what, 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 what picture are we painting and why are we painting it? And how does it find its expression in the, in the, in the, he wouldn't say inspired. I would say the inspired text. Sure. Um, so that, that interaction of there's always art involved. Um, I think Alana Kershon wrote in her book, she's an Orthodox Jew who wrote a book. If all the seas were ink. And she talks at great length about the Hadron prayer of Talmud, that we would study Talmud, and then Talmud studies us. Mm. And we're the ones that give expression and color. We're the ones that get to choose what we do with what the rabbis have done. The rabbis said this, and we can see it one way, or we can see it another. And there's always art involved. You mean the point isn't just to like 
memorize as many rabbinic sayings like ammo so that we can prove how uh, evolved we are. Yeah, right. Exactly. Wow. Wow. Fascinating. Yeah. Okay. So why do you love four voices? Um, I I see four distinct sections. Um, not being the Hebrew expert, and Elle will be the first to vouch for my lack of Hebrew expertise, which I'll is growing. I'll be the first to vouch for how much progress and how competent you are. I just appreciate that so much. But I see, I see a, I see a setup. Like I feel just like just looking at, and I'm not talking about the the English words. I just mean the flow of the work of Isaiah. I see that distinct setup in the beginning, um, kind of like as we did in session two. There is a here is here is the situation at hand. Then I see all of these poetic like, so that's one through eleven or twelve, and then twelve through thirty nine is like this poetic compilation of woes and curses. And like you said that you have done, you have been weighed and found found wanting. And then there's this distinct conversation shift where like you have, you have a period of history. We're now literally according to the book itself, sitting in captivity because we're post Hezekiah and Sennacherib. And now there's like, okay, your time, the sins have been paid for. And so now we're going to talk about what it means to sit in this space. Mm-hmm. And I used to just do all of that in one voice back when Elle was taking a class at a campus. But then later, as we recorded the podcast, Brueggemann, some of his work convinced me, I felt like there was either another tone shift, another section. And I think maybe the the better way to say it would be sections of Isaiah. I feel like they fit different periods of history. Therefore, I would assume different author sources. Um, but then, but then 55 through 66 feels like it's a very beautiful prophetic end times picture of what God can do that hope you were talking about a moment ago. Like here is we have been found wanting, but that's not the end of the story. So that's why I love those, those four sections. I mean, I'm definitely still right, but that's really nice. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I think I, and I don't have the tools to make those decisions on my own. So I look to the people that I, those scholars that I read to go, well, why did they, like, sure, I remember, no. I remember going to, okay, that's, that's easy for me to get my, once I'm willing to accept, well, first Isaiah and second Isaiah, that's easy. But then to go, oh, wait, some people are going, breaking up multiple sections in the first part. Oh, okay. But then I'd never seen until I encountered Brueggemann referencing two different parts of second Isaiah. And then I went, oh. So I I look to those people and try to go, okay, well, I respect their scholarship. I see what they're seeing. And those are, I don't have the tools to come to my own scientific evaluation. Yes. I was mostly just trying to deliver because uh, Brent promised everybody that it would be spicy and we've been pretty chill. (laughs) Yeah. Now, if we want to talk about Torah sometime, let's come back and talk about actual... Torah and the different things going on and like the Exodus story and mm-hmm. usages of the name of God. And I'll be ready mm-hmm. with all my clips from the text in us. And I'll be like, or this could just be multiple authors. That's what I, a clip that's show. That's the shade I always throw. I always, yeah. I always throw it all in the, on Facebook. Here's why I'm totally confident that that won't happen. That would be so much work when you wouldn't do it. <laughs> it's true. You don't have time. <laughs> I would have to, I'd have to get Brent to help me out. That's to, right. You would find a minion and uh, assign it. Okay, well, lest we 
conclude an episode without reading any actual text. Oh. I'd like to close this episode with the closing of this portion of Isaiah, the end of chapter 39. Have to still get into heaven somehow. That's right. <laughs> the, the word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied, for he thought there will be peace and security in my lifetime. Mm. May it be so for us. Amen. Bishon Yeshua. Well, that actually does it for this episode. You can go to BayamonteSipShop.com. We've got plenty of show notes, as we always do when Elle is with us. I love it. Um, might even have some extra stuff that she wasn't planning on. It would be great. <laughs> uh, but go to the website. We've got groups there. We've got events there. Like, this is, I mean, just this whole idea of, like, figuring out what these voices are and what they're saying to us and what they're communicating. Like, you got to be in a group of some kind to do this. And so if you don't have one, Check it out on the website. The map will help you get connected to somebody. There's more and more groups all the time, so hopefully you can find someone close by. And if not, get in touch with us. Use the contact page. We'll help you try to establish a community like that so you can wrestle with this not alone because it's not fun to do this alone. So thanks for joining us on the Baby Mall Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. beginning local recording i'm recording right now so we're i'm ready to start talking about football whenever you want okay local check check i'm good to go i'm recording against my better judgment this is not our end of the season wrap-up for some of us end, it of is. The foot, end of the football season not end of the bama season end of the football season the season that truly matters yeah uh-huh um great so you want to tell you want to tell them what happened marty you want to tell so today is january the third it's a Wednesday. Yeah, I'd love to tell them what happened. The Chiefs, with uh, all their starting star players, barely defeated my backup quarterback well, by one touchdown and stopped our game-winning drive successfully. So there you go. Good job. Good job. You were able to stop our backup quarterback, Reed. By sacking him four times in the last 90 seconds yeah. of the game? Yeah. Doesn't yeah. sound like a very game-winning drive to me. Well, I mean, if it would have been... If it would have been our starter, it would have been. We all know it. You know it. I know it. I don't know anything. There wouldn't have been a game-winning drive. You've been down by three touchdowns, but that's okay. It's okay, Marty. Let it out. Let it out. Our, <sighs> our team... Here's what I can tell you, Brent. I can tell you that they're, they're looking really good for a 10-7 record. Looking pretty good for a 10-7 record. 10-6 right now. I'm really glad you brought that up, Marty, because I actually sent you a polo about this, but I'm going to recap for anybody who's interested what I said in that polo and... That is this. Yes, Marty, you are correct about your prediction. And I want you, well, you'll probably be correct. There is actually still one game left to play, and we're not going to play any of our starters. Well, I don't know. They haven't announced anything. But almost certainly the Chiefs will play none of their starters uh, because this is a garbage game. It means nothing for the playoffs. <laughs> And so we. W I love how you started that. We're not going to play as if you're well, on yeah, the coaching staff. Of course, staff. that's how you got to talk about it. <laughs> uh, so we could very right now we are uh, ten and six, and it's very likely that we'll. Well, I don't know what the charge. I don't know if the Chargers are going to try to play for anything. Who knows? Maybe it could just be a whole bunch of second stringers and whatever. It doesn't really matter though. Shoot, you guys might find you're better on the bench. The way you guys have been playing this year, I wouldn't be surprised. Even if Marty is accurate about the 10 and 7 which I hope that he is. I was observing to him privately the other day that he can have his whole like 
fanfare and trumpets. Yay, Marty is the prophet. He was correct in his 10 and 7 prediction because the way that the season played out with the wins, losses being what they were when they were, I told Marty it seemed like there was a deeper sort of wisdom at play that runs way more true to the core of reality than just numbers and columns or letters and columns. And that is that when Marty was in Kirksville to watch the Chiefs and Bengals play on New Year's Eve, it just so happened that at that moment in time, all of these things, factors come, and some of them very bad. It's been a frustrating season for Chiefs fans, and I know it's been a frustrating season for Bengals fans too. But all of these many bad, some good things intersecting at this moment, which allowed for the Chiefs securing their 10th win that Marty predicted, would also be the win that clinched the division for us and sent us to the playoffs and would be the win that utterly ended the Bengals season, sending them home with no chance of making the playoffs, which is the second time that happened in the calendar year of 2023. How does it feel, Marty, as a Bengals fan, to have had your football season ended two different times at Arrowhead? At Arrowhead Stadium. How does that feel? Well, the fact that it happened twice within the same calendar year tells you how far into the year we were last time. So, and give me a healthy quarterback and we'll be, we'll be back. We'll be back. How'd Jamar do, by the way? How was his game on Sunday? His game was mediocre, as was your secondaries. But it's okay. I don't know. We'll see. I don't, whatever. We don't have to get into the details of. You won't get far into the playoffs. You'll be you'll be watching Actually, football. Would, you'll be watching the postseason with me very quickly. So it's okay. I would like you to. I know we don't know the playoff picture yet. It looks like it looks like the Chiefs will either be playing the Bills or the Dolphins. Probably the Dolphins actually in the wild card round. Um. So what? What in those circumstances? What do you think? I guess I'm not asking you because we don't know for sure who we're playing to make a hard, like, prophetic prediction. But what's your strong gut feeling here, Marty? Are the Chiefs... Did Chubb... <laughs> what's the injury update on Chubb? I think he's out. Is he out? I think so. I'm not sure it matters a lot, but that would have... I think you lose to both. I think you lose to either. You, you lose we, the Bills. We lose to either team. Yeah, you don't make it to the divisional round. Okay, so it doesn't matter who we play. Well, and there's there's some smaller statistical possibilities that we play, like the Steelers or the Jags or I don't know who. Yeah. Do you want me to make my playoff prediction for your team? I bet it's going to come true. Brent, it's time to start this episode. I, I do have one other question, though. I I didn't have the chance to go to Kirksville myself, so I didn't get to be in the in the room. I'm almost glad that I wasn't because I feel like it would have been pretty depressing. No. Okay. Uh, so is your question just what it was like? Tell me the, tell me the mood. Tell me that, you know, it was like, were people having a good time at least in general? Like what, what was it like getting together in a casual way with most of the Bama team? Well, first of all, um, it was, it was very awesome for the team and especially for Marty to like make the trip to Kirksville for this. I know that's not like a, that's not a small thing to, you know, commit to and work out the logistics for. So I do appreciate that. Uh, Josh and L were there uh, along with Marty and me. It also is uh, noteworthy um, and very relevant that there were like 25 other people there. Um, 
because Derek, who's been on the podcast before, every year at New Year's, he has a big New Year's party with alumni that come back. And so they were all in and there were a bunch of CCF folks there. So it was a crowded house, which is not Marty's preferred um, uh, situation to watch football. Um, so that all is worth noting. Uh, I thought it was really I thought it was pretty enjoyable. There was like the appropriate amount of trash talking at the right times. Um, Actually, at one point, my favorite moment was toward the end of the half when we were down the first half, we were down and uh, trying to drive down the field and score a touchdown. And we had third and something and uh, MVS was running across basically at the line to gain for the first down. Mahomes like put it into his hands and he dropped it. And Marty and I were standing right next to each other. And this has been the story of like the whole season for the Chiefs is just a billion dropped passes. And I I just turned to him and I put my head in his chest and he hugged me and he started singing the song Friends of Friends Forever If the Lord's the Lord from Michael W. Smith. And it was a tender moment. He was caring for me in that moment. Uh, we were definitely watching together at the end of the game, the last half of the fourth quarter, as it started to become more and more cemented. I mean, yes, Marty says could have been a game-winning drive, but I think he and I both know that there was there was not a lot of hope for that actually happening. Um, so I don't know. I, I really enjoyed it. I think I would prefer in the future, like a, like a really intimate, uh, where we can do a lot of football talk as the game is going on and that kind of thing. I assume that's what Marty would like, but anyway, Marty, what was the game like for you? I won't add much more commentary than that. I would prefer a more intimate is the word that he used setting with, uh, yeah, smaller crowd. I'm an introvert. It's my, it's my way is his way. But he was a good sport. I was definitely picturing a room of like six people max. So that's no. It was at Trush's house, and there were there were three TVs going in the house with the game on. Uh, and I was kind of milling about for a lot of the game from this room to that room to the other room. I mean, I knew everybody who was there, so that was you know a different situation for me than for Marty, who didn't know a lot of the people. Um, yeah, and L was you know hanging out, talking about I don't know. Israel and Hebrew and Greece and stuff like that with people. And Josh was uh, playing wingspan on his computer with Sophia. It was really cute. Actually, they were sitting next to each other at the kitchen table and Josh was playing on his laptop and Sophia was playing on her phone. And that was cute. Um, and then, you know, Marty and I were locked in on the game. Beautiful. There's always next season, Marty. There always is next season it's probably not something you want to be thinking about no definitely not i mean i i'm sober i told you actually this is a good segue into psalm 91 um that this kind of mario star attitude is like exactly what i feel like we need given how desperate our situation has looked many times this season that only by the uh undefeatable power of god are we going to make it through these playoffs so who knows? Uh, actually, I keep thinking about though a thousand fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand. I just keep thinking about that as football passes. And that's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking when you as soon as those words fall at my side, 
Like, How many the times? Receivers right there. All the time. So maybe, I don't know. Who knows? Maybe they'll catch the one that matters. <laughs> maybe. I don't have a lot of hope, though. But you never count us out when Mahomes is playing quarterback. I guess final note to close out this segment, as it currently stands, the Niners have the best uh, Vegas odds of winning it all. So there we go. I do like your quiet, patient, <laughs> man just, a few <laughs> words. You know better than to put your foot in your mouth. You'll just wait. You'll just sit and wait. And even then, he'll only say what odds are or what odds were. Like, even if the Chiefs win the Super Bowl, he won't say anything other than, well, Vegas said that there was a 4% chance that this would happen. <laughs> Which actually, I do think, are the Chiefs' odds by Vegas for winning the Super Bowl is 4%. Yeah, I don't know what the percentages are. It just has this weird whatever. The Niners are at something like 40%. So they, they have like an order of magnitude. Plus 210 I don't completely understand how, what that know. means or where I it comes know. from, but I know that Vegas doesn't like to lose money, so they're usually pretty good with their numbers. Vegas wasn't built on winners. They haven't met Patrick Mahomes yet. <laughs>